to Mission 150, the podcast that tells stories from 150 years of Seventh-day Adventist mission to the world. To find out more about mission in the Adventist church today, go to AdventistMission.org. That's AdventistMission.org. Today, we're joined again by Dr. Gary Kraus, who is the director of the General Conference Office of Adventist Mission. Gary, welcome to Mission 150. Thank you, Dr. Nevers. <laughs> Not yet. It's but on the way. I'm about a year to I, get there. I know, uh, it's almost there. If everything goes well. Gary, we're glad to have you back. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. Last week, we talked about your own personal journey of mission and the origins of today's Office of Adventist Mission and, and particularly about global mission. Remind our audience, in case they missed the last episode, about what it is the Office of Adventist Mission does. Right. So... Adventist mission is an umbrella term for two responsibilities. One is for global mission, church planting, specifically in unentered areas and among unreached people groups. Also caring for mission awareness, to raise the general awareness of church members of what's happening when they give their mission offerings. Because of their support financially through their prayers, we're sending missionaries. We have so much education work going, we have health work going, we have church planting going. We have all these wonderful things happening, which would not be happening without their support. And the goal for the second part is partly to increase the mission offering. Definitely. And so I'd like to, to say that mission offerings are like a life-giving river that flows throughout the world, mm. helping to support different mission activities. We don't know where every cup of water specifically goes, but we see the results. Right, right. You talked about the responsibility for church planting, which is a continuation of the global strategy, which we talked about last week, adopted in 1990. But I think a good question to ask is, why is church planting important? Uh, some might say, shouldn't we be focusing on growing churches that are half empty rather than starting new churches that might be half empty? Some might say, and in fact, many do say <laughs> that, right? You know, and logically, you know, you can imagine, you can understand an administrator saying, in this conference, we have 50 churches and most of them are only half full. So we should be focusing on building up those churches. And I get it. And I think we should be doing that. I think it's very important for us to keep that focus. But the church has grown historically through church planting. And church planting reaches people who may never be reached by some of those established churches because some of those established churches, they, they have their own culture, they have their own way of doing things, they may not open the, their doors so easily to some of these people. Um, and sometimes these churches become very inward focused. But when you are planting a new group of believers, you're focused 100% on the community because there's nothing else to be focused on. You're not being distracted by, by other things. But... Three reasons, David. One, it's biblical. You look at the book of Acts, it's, it's mm. basically the story of church planting. It's a manual on church planting. The Great Commission is not a commission to just make indi individual disciples. It's a commission to make individual disciples within the context of church. Secondly, it's in our DNA as a Seventh-day Adventist. We are historically a church planting movement. We started as a church planting movement We've only continued to grow as we're focused on church planting. And the third reason is if you're not persuaded by the Bible or by Ellen White and our history, it works. Pragmatically, it works. And so, but in the case of Adventist mission, 
you're often planting church, or uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you're often, are you mostly planting churches in areas that haven't been reached? So there, of course, there is, there's no option but to support a half-empty church. Or do you also support church plants in areas where the church is well-established? We do both. So, so we're obviously going to put more resources, more funding to unreached areas that are, you know, if you've got a city of 10 million people and we have no church, that's obviously going to be a highest priority. Or even if you have one church, that's still not enough for a city right. of 10 million people. Exactly. So, but if you come to us with a proposal to plant a church in an area where we have some churches, but you're, asking, you're, you're reaching a certain demographic or a certain people group that we haven't reached, then we're going to look at it and we, and we will support it. You know, you, you can go to, say, the city of Sao Paulo, for example, in Brazil. Mm. We have hundreds One of One of the most reached, perhaps the most reached Adventist city in the world. It seems like every half a kilometre there's a new Adventist church. There are five conferences in the city. Right. It's so, a big, that's the metro area, to be fair. Yeah. But still, but still, it's extraordinary. But, but, yeah. So from one perspective, it's reached. But if you look at it from a people group perspective, most of those churches come from a certain demographic group. And so if you came to us with a proposal, we want to start a church here that's going to be reaching to the middle to upper classes, then we're going to be looking at that very seriously. Or even somewhere, say, like Nairobi, where I just was in, in March. I preached at a local Adventist church. I was picked up and, and driven there by the, the local church pastor. And on the way, we did pass a new Adventist church about every half kilometer. And yet um, Kenya as a country tribes are very important. Is it the case that we've reached all the tribes equally or are, or, or are we disproportionately spread? Kenya is a, a prime example where most of the Adventist church comes from one or two tribes. So, so all the other tribes we've barely touched. Exactly. So even though we have such a strong presence, if you just look at the statistics for Kenya as a whole, you'd look at it and say, we're doing really well here. If you look at it in terms of geography, yes. But in terms of people groups, no. Right. I remember... When I was in London, Gary, we, we had this idea of starting a church plant called The Studio. And you... It's very postmodern. So. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. That, that, you got it. That's exactly right. And we wanted to do it in a very exclusive way. You mm. know, you're only in if you're invited. It's not open to the public. Uh, because at certain, at certain point in London, the demographic we wanted to reach, they were not interested in joining with anyone and everyone. So I remember you giving us uh, quite uh, encouragement at the time because this was a new people group that no one had reached. And, and I think I will, I will testify. Can I testify? I'll testify. Testify. We like testimonies. As a, as a local church pastor, having someone from the general conference being interested in the hopes and dreams uh, that are happening in a small part of the world where the church is not growing the fastest, I can tell you there is how meaningful that is. You know, we talked once or twice. That was about it. Uh, but members of your team, we talked more often. And, and that provided encourage, encouragement for the whole team that was there. That Great. the world church was interested in this little effort that we wanted to, to do. Great. And eventually I was called here, so the project never happened. But I think that's that... Where, uh, that's where the testimony goes off the rails. <laughs> yes, it just... Uh, I, I, I didn't know how to end it, you know? <laughs> yes, yes. At yeah. least you're honest. We'll leave the story half told. Um, Hopefully somebody else will pick it up. <laughs> the project is there, still, still in PDF form. Do you find that to be the case as you travel to different parts of the world? Do you find that this encouragement sometimes bear fruit 
And do you see that as one of the reasons why this office is so important? Yeah, I think it's very important. And, you know, obviously with thousands of projects that we support, I personally can't be involved in every, every one. But I do like to be involved in as many as I can because it helps me keep in touch with we're not just looking at funds and statistics and demographics here. We're talking about real people on That's the ground. Right. Mm. That's right. So it's important for me to make those connections with with some of those on the ground plants. And so, yeah, it's greatly encouraging for me when I when I actually get the privilege of visiting a church plant and I can remember that at our mission board strategy and funding committee, we voted that two years before. And at that stage, it was something we looked at on a sheet of paper. Now we see smiling men and women who have found hope in Jesus Christ. I mean, it yeah. doesn't get any better than that, right? Mm. That's right. Yeah. Who does the church planting, Gary? Do you just rely on existing churches who propose, for, as Sam did, a new church plant? What do you do where you've got that city of 10 million with, with, with no church already? How do you go about planting a church there? So who the, does it? Okay, so the, the general principle is that we try to get someone as local as possible so that they know the culture, they know the language. So in most areas of the world, it's, we call them global mission pioneers, lay people who receive some basic training, and they go to an area to start the new group of believers. Now, obviously, in some areas, we don't have people there to do that, so we have to import them. And I remember the first global mission trip I went on, I met Mike Ryan in West Africa, and we went to... Burkina Faso, mm. and the church was just starting to open up there with Global Mission Pioneers. They brought them in from Togo. so The, the, the country next door. Yes, yeah, so they came in from Togo and they were planting. So that's the general principle that we try to get as close as possible culturally as we can. And they are recruited by the local field. We don't do it from our office. Uh -huh. we, we don't know. They, they so you fund them. We fund them. But you don't select them. No. They select they train, they care for. What sort of training do Global Mission Pioneers do? It varies from different parts of the world, and to be honest, some areas are stronger than others, um, but they receive usually basic training in how to give a Bible study, how to put Christ's method of ministry into practice. Here's some simple health remedies, just basic Bible worker sorts of principles on right. how to emerge, incarnate yourself in the community, become one with the people in the community, make friends, and then start a new group of believers. You mentioned their Christ method of ministry. Not all of our listeners and viewers will know what that is. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? Yes, I, I, I do, because this is the foundation of global mission, and we use this as our, the foundation of everything that we do. We follow Christ's example, and we think that Ellen White summarized it best in Ministry of Healing, page 143, where she said, the Savior mingled with people. He showed sympathy to them. He ministered to needs, he won confidence, and then he bade them to follow Then Jesus. he bade them follow me, right. yes. So every proposal we get, whether it be for a church planting project or a center of influence, whatever it is, we want them to tell us, how are you going to put Christ's method of ministry into practice? What is your plan? What is a center of influence? You just mentioned that as well. Yeah, so a center of influence is something that in the past several years we've really become engaged in in global mission. And it's, we're borrowing, a prince, uh, again, an idea from Ellen White. She used this term a lot, center of influence. She used it to, she said cities were centers of influence. She said people were centers of influence. She said Jesus was a center of influence. Satan was a center of influence. But, but she talked about these ministry centers hmm. 
in cities mm. that would be platforms for putting Christ's method of ministry into practice. And so she was, was thinking about things like um, simple health treatment rooms, uh, hygienic restaurants, hygienic because most restaurants at that time were not, we're hygienic. not hygienic, yes. <laughs> and, and the idea was that you would minister to the needs of the urban community, but you had a larger goal, and that was to share Jesus with these people and share the Adventist faith with them. And we've taken that idea now and embraced it in Global Mission, and we add another thing to it, is that any urban centre of influence that we help fund we expect them to have a goal to start a new group of believers from that centre, at least a group, if not more. Okay. So there's a connection between centres of influence and church planting? The ones that we fund, yes. Now, having said that, I've, I've visited many centres of influence that are doing wonderful work that don't, don't have a goal of church planting. I've visited some in South America, in Chile, for example, actually at, attached to a church. A, a local church is running a centre of influence and they use that to help make connections with the community, which is great. Right. But that's not what our that's not what our ministry is. Our ministry is to use these as a platform to start new groups of believers. Let me cause trouble. Cause trouble here. <laughs> so I've got um, an observation that I've noticed about Christ's method. And there are two parts to the method, right? One is the first part that you described winning people's confidence and ministering to their needs. The second part is uh, the bid, bid them follow me, yeah. which is, let's call it the proclamation part, yeah. right? The, the more direct, you yes. need to give your life to Christ. Um, it, it, you know, re respond to his love, let's say. Let's imagine you have a boat and there are two oars. I think that some of us, have focused too much on one or and not the other. Exactly. So some have said, look, this compassion stuff, don't worry about it. Let's just proclaim. Right. Let's proclaim, let's proclaim and proclaim. And I've seen it. And all that boat does, it just keeps going round <laughs> and round and round. It doesn't go anywhere. But I've also seen the other side, which is let's just have compassion. Yep. Compassion, compassion, compassion. We wait for people to ask questions. Um, in my experience in London, very few people, if any, ask questions. It doesn't matter how good you are to them. They don't initiate those religious questions. Hmm. So compassion, and you're going round and round and round in circles too. And it becomes an end in itself. Absolutely. But both parts of the method matter, right? If you, if you do both, if you love people, and because you love them, you proclaim, then you go somewhere. <laughs> in this mission boat, right in this in this river that you are, you know, uh, positioning. How do you see that view, Gary? Do you I, see that also? I echo that one hundred percent, and I think that part of the problem that you have helped us see clearly, David, the apostasy rate in the Seventh Day Adventist Church. Mm. I think part of the reason for that apostasy rate is because we've only been rowing with one oar in some places, where people come in with a head knowledge, but they haven't had the heart mm. connection with Jesus and the church that they should have. And that's the result of rowing just one oar. But on the other side, if you're just rowing the oar, then we just become another social service agency, which is good. We need more social service agencies, but we're called to something bigger than that. And so I think that that holistic emphasis. Now, having said that, historically as Adventists, if we're going to err 
with one oar, that's almost poetic, if we're going to err with one oar, <laughs> it's going to be on the proclamation side. Because mm -hmm. we write books, we have lit truth-filled literature, we have seminars, we have evangelistic series. We love to baptize people, and we should. We, that's what we're about. We're getting people into the kingdom. And so if we're going to err with one oar, it's going to be on that side. But what you're talking about is the boat goes smoother and goes faster and forward when we're when we have that balance that we need. Yeah, and I've seen parts of the world that if they're going to err, they would err on this side. The uh, compassion the side. The compassion side. Yeah. Because they're, they're so scared of rejection. They're so scared of, of losing their street credit yeah. that they would rather not proclaim. It's like, God, if you want me to say something, get them to ask a question. Right. Right. And then I'll be happy to, and then, you know, and, and even then will be just trepidation. But I, I, you know, having said that, Sam, I... I witnessed something that you helped start, and that was the Sabbath sofa. Mm -hmm. And I had the honor of participating in the Sabbath sofa. Yes, you, you, you sat in the Sabbath sofa, yeah, that's the, right. The, 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 you know, the, just for those viewing, the, the Sabbath sofa was a sofa from Ikea. You put it in that's the back right, of a truck, yeah. Yeah. put it in an urban area, put up signs saying, are you tired, do you need rest, and invited people to sit down. But I sat on that sofa when people came cold turkey and I saw your friend, the other Sam. Sam. Mm -hmm. Within 30 Sam seconds, Robert. they're opening up to him, talking about their lives, their stress, et cetera, et cetera. And I saw him like in five minutes, he had the phone number of a guy to have a follow-up discussion about spiritual things at a restaurant the next week. So Th There is a story behind that, right? Okay. So Sam, when he finished, and I hope... You don't mind me telling your story, Sam. So when he finished Newbold, he wasn't picked up by the conference. Okay. His mom was my elder, right? And um, I knew about this, so I called him and said, look, can you, do you, are you willing to, to help me in, in this local church? And he was like, I don't know. Let's see. Let's see. He had nowhere else to go, right? Mm. So, so basically, eventually, he accepted, and he worked as my associate for a while. I was a senior pastor in Wimbledon. Adventist Church there, um, Wimbledon International. And Sam and I are forced together. I've never, I have rarely have this experience because he is very creative. I am somewhat creative. And together, these ideas just kept coming and coming and coming. So Heroes, the game, was born out of, mm. that, uh, out of that experience. I was with him for like six months. And the Sabbath Sofa was born out of that experience. How can we put, how can we have the whole of Christ method in the center of, of town, right, in London. And that's how the so, uh, Sabbath Soul first started. Then we talked to Vili, another force, and Vili's a doer. It's like, Vili's okay, a doer, I know Vili. Yeah. You know Vili, yeah. right? Yeah. Let's make it happen, we right? Know <laughs> Hi, Vili. <laughs> so, so then we, we, we took the sofa, we went to London. But before that happened, Sam was always very worried about approaching indigenous, white, British, middle-class people. Right? They're an unreached people group. Yes, absolutely. And he was, he was worried about that. And we went to some trainings. He was like, I don't know about this and so on. So we were in a hotel in the training uh, near Reading. And it was uh, Friday night, something like that. And in order to get to the conference and back to our rooms, we went through the bar of this four-star hotel. And so we sat down. I told him, let's sit down. And I said, what would I say to you? What would you say if I said that? You see that couple there? What if I tell you that we we're going to go there, we're going to talk to them, and in five minutes, we're going to be talking about Jesus? And he goes, absolutely impossible. Cannot happen. I said, okay, follow me. He was worried at first and, and tense, and he didn't. 
Within five minutes, we were talking about Jesus. And that was his new day. After that, he was all over. And I said, see, it's not complicated. They're not, they're not impossible to reach. The idea that they don't care and they want to reject religion, that's just not the case. Just do it. This unreached people group, you have what it takes. Let's go. So we worked the script for the Sabbath sofa. And that's how we went from within three minutes, somebody sitting on the sofa and they are committed to keeping at least one Sabbath in their life yeah. because of that contextualization. But you see both there. It's both ors. That's right. You know, you've got the mm. compassion for the tiredness of the city and the proclamation on how important the Sabbath is, you know, for people. Right. So you're connecting truth with need. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Christ's method, which yes. you're talking about. Coming back to the Office of Adventist Mission, how is planning done for church planting? Is it something that you do here at the General Conference and it all flows down through the rest of the church structure? Um, or... Is, there, is it something that is also involving church leaders at the regional and local level? So there's a lot of church planning that happens without any reference to us whatsoever. It's sure. Just, just yes. local Amen, fields. right? <laughs> yeah, local fields doing what they should be doing. Um, but then there are... Then there are territories which don't have much presence and they want to expand it and they need help because they can't evangelize their own territory. Right, and they may not have the funds or they need some help or whatnot. So we have a process where... They submit a direct action plan, we call it, to us. This is their direct action plan to start a new group of believers. And for it to happen, it has to be approved at the local mission conference, union, division, and at the general conference. So there is funding and approval from every level. So it's not a GC project. We all own this project right. together. Now, we have and certain... Is, is that the case with centers of influence as well? Exactly the same with centers of influence. We have general criteria that we expect. One, it can't be planting a church right next to another church. It has to be, right. <laughs> you, whatever, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It has to be using Christ within ministry. But within those broad parameters, they do it their way. We don't say, okay, you're in Wimbledon, London. You're going to plant a church and this is how you're going to do it. No, it's a grassroots approach. So every project that comes to us comes from the local field. Mm. And That's so, great. And so... Mike Ryan, I remember, used to quietly boast that he'd never had any complaints about any global mission project. And that's because it wasn't a GC project, it was a local project. It was project. a local project, yeah. 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 Gary, you've been sharing with us about the different things that the Office of Adventist Mission does. Yes. But there's a particular resource that you have. Um, they used to be called Global Mission Religious Study Centers. Now I understand they're simply called Global Mission Centers. Why do, they, why do we need them and what do they do? Good. Uh, this is one of my favorite topics. So when Global Strategy was first put together back in the 1980s, they put together a document I referred to last program, which talked about what Global Strategy would look like. How do we reach unreached people groups? And listed in that document, Global Strategy of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, it called for the establishment of religious study centers to help us better understand some of these big people groups, other world religions, better understand Hindus so that we can be more intelligent and more effective in communicating with them. Because if we come with what we've used for reaching other Christians and we share that with them, it's going to be totally meaningless. So it called for study, starting these centers to help us be more effective in our witness, in our communication with these groups. 
And so it started small with one or two. Um, now we have six centres hmm. for the major world religions and also for secular and post-Christian people and also for urban people. And they are, are given the responsibility to put methods and models into practice on the ground so that we can learn from them and better understand to be more effective in, in our communication with these, um, with these groups. And it was revolutionary. I mean, now we don't really think too much about it, but you think of the church leaders back then to say, we've focused almost 100% on Christians, but now we're going to do something constructive to make the Adventist message effective in these vast people groups we haven't touched. Mm. And we changed billions, the name. Billions of people. Billions. And so we changed the name from study centers because we didn't want it to sound like an academic think tank. This is not just, we want them to be informed and research and study and get the data, but we want more importantly, we want to see that put into practice. We want to see working models of, of how this can be done. I think it took a lot of humility from the leaders to realize that we have no idea what we're doing <laughs> when we reach these, right? These, sure. Okay, so if, if we... Because sometimes you talk to some leaders and they know everything about everything. Sure. Uh, but it seems that they, they realize, hold on a minute, we don't know how to do this. We don't have the experience it takes. So this is kind of, it's kind of like a lab almost, right? Yep, it's, it's this prototyping, this missional prototyping uh, kind of thing. And I have some experience with the centers and, and that's exactly what they do. They learn from the different projects and then they bring that knowledge to others so we don't make the same mistakes, we can make entirely new ones. <laughs> yeah. But that, that's almost a design thinking methodology to mission. I don't know if you've ever uh, looked at that from that perspective. No, I hadn't thought about it that way, but it's, it's definitely true. And of course it was humble, but the data was humbling. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the data, that, and they looked at that world map and they looked at those people groups and they thought, wow, and we're gonna start somewhere. So. But, but that's not common either. I'm sorry, David. You know, you have, it's very easy to look at data positively. That's true. Right? And, 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 and then it's very good at it. Yeah, we just, okay, let's look at the data. And you can cut the data in different ways. Sure. Even the mission offerings that we were talking about. If you, if you want to show a positive graph for mission offerings, it's easy and it's truthful. The amount of dollars given to mission. And you will see that increase. As soon as you say, in relation to membership yeah. and inflation, and all of a sudden it's a very different graph that it's presented. That's right. So just the fact that they brought up the real graphs yeah. that showed the that that reflected the reality and how bad it was shows that the I think the Holy Spirit was really working through them because God is interested in the truth as it is, not as we could create massage. a narrative, massage and yeah. create a narrative around. Speaking of humbling data, in 2013, there was a conference that was a bit, I think, like the global mission, the, the conference that started global mission back in 1989. It was also, it, was, it wasn't held at Kohata Springs, unlike the global strategy founding conference. It was held here at the general conference and it was on urban mission. It's time. It's time, it was called. And because of, again, of the recognition, even though we've done better in church planting amongst certain world religions, we still have made next to no progress in, in big cities. And you may recall that I put together quite a lot of the data for that. And it was particularly humbling as we looked at the, the ratios of Adventists 
and you'd even look at it at, at one division and say, here's our ratio Adventist to population. That looks good. Now look at it, compare it Adventist to population outside a big city and inside a big city. And it was like, wow. Um, and I can remember going through that data presentation. It was one of the first presentations and seeing people's jaws literally drop. So this comes back to the urban centers of influence, Gary. Um, how important to, to Adventist mission are the urban centers of influence? They're crucial for us because, you know, when we look at the mission challenges remaining, um, the cities loom large. And, you know, it's only one method, but it's a, it's, it's a method that is part of our history as Adventists. I mean, you look back in the 1800s, as you know well, David, there were many city missions all over North America. That's right. And then it, for various reasons, which you've outlined in various places, that declined and urban ministry almost became something we wanted to turn our back on. It was mm. getting our hands too dirty. And, yeah. and, and, and as Adventists, we're country-loving people. Yeah, leave you know, the cities. We are country-loving people. And so Ellen White, more than 100 years ago, said, you have neglected the cities. What would she say today? Mm. And with the growth. So, so for us, centers of influence are a, a crucial way of, of, um, of doing what we're called to do in the cities. And the beauty of a center of influence is it can be totally different in different places. It, it, there's no one model. There's certain parameters around it. You know, it needs to be Christ's method, but it can be a, a, a mechanics shop. It can be a, English as a second language. It can be a um, foot massage place. I don't, I don't care what it is. A restaurant. It can be a vegetarian restaurant. I don't care what it is. As long as it's helping us put Christ's method into practice to make those connections, I think connection is the key word here. As Adventists, we sometimes get disconnected from our communities and we certainly get disconnected from urban communities. And so centers of influence allow us to make those important connections. Mm. And the business world knows this. I mean, you, here in the Washington, D.C. area, we have Capital One Bank. You go down to D.C., they've started a Capital One Cafe. Is that right? Yeah, it's a secular center of influence. You go visit it. You go in there, there's friendly people wandering around, there's computer terminals, they'll come and show you how you can open up a bank account. <laughs> There's a cafe there where you can get refreshments. They even have a dedicated room where you can go in and if you're a non-profit, you can use the facility for free. It has teleconferencing facilities, et cetera, et cetera. So they are making connections with people that they mm. couldn't in a normal bank. Mm. And centers of influence allow us to make connections that we wouldn't in a normal Adventist church. I like that way of putting it. You, yeah. you mentioned city missions. I wasn't familiar with that term at all. Is this the same idea that we talked about missions in countries where there would be somewhat of a compound and from there you would, you no, would work through or, or is a different? Adventist city missions in the late 19th century and first decade of the 20th century before they experienced a sharp decline which I think is because, as Gary said, it was getting your hands too dirty. Mm. And as we became more, as we became more middle class, we became more respectable. We no longer wanted to be associated with getting our hands dirty. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. It's a, it's a terrible thing to say, but it's true. But if you look at those city missions, they were doing all kinds of things. Um, in ports, they would have a, a mission for sailors to give a, you know, because sailors get off their ship. Where do they stay? They're often lured into insalubrious and unhealthy activities. 
give them a, a bed for the night. Um, they were, had the hygienic restaurant, vegetarian restaurant, um, cooking, cookery classes, bookstore. There in Chicago, they even had a ministry for prostitutes to rescue prostitutes from their life of degradation. Um, they had uh, schools for, chil for children, uh, what today would be called daycare centers. So there was no one-size-fits-all model for an Adventist city mission. They did all kinds of things. So but what they all had in common was that they were in the center of a city and they were trying to reach out to their community. So as a group of Adventists that live in a deep urban environment, see needs and meet those needs. Yes. Well put. But then we became too sophisticated. Yes. It reminds me of the story of, of this. Maybe you heard it. Is I, it a true story? Sam? No, it's a parable. Okay. <laughs> it's a parable of this, uh, this village. They live near a, a shipping um, lane? Corridor. Corridor. Lane. Shipping lane. lane. Yeah, shipping yeah. lane. And, and there was no uh, lighthouse. So the ship, every few weeks, a ship would uh, capsize and the crew would arrive and then they would help them. Right? That was the whole thing. They would help them with everything they needed. And they thought, why don't we build a little hut? Because, you know, it's easier. And then the hut became a, a much more prominent building. And eventually they carpeted it and they so beautiful. And then there was a shipwreck and they were having a beautiful dinner inside. And as the shipwreck, as they were arriving, um, the people were arriving all wet and almost dead, they would say, look, if only we could help them, but it would ruin the carpet. So that's a, a natural progression in urban... Institutionalization. In, in the cities. Because okay. usually our Adventists in the cities, they earn more. That's why they can live there. And it's expensive to live in cities. And then our churches will always reflect the comfort of the members' houses. Yes. I've been a pastor, I don't know, 10, 11 churches. Maybe less. But what I've noticed is when the church becomes uh, a little bit more shabby than the average member's homes, yes, people start talking about renovation, right? And and if you attend the church and there's and there is dirt in the walls and you see it's not you know not sophisticated at all, I promise you, when you visit the members, that's exactly what it will look like because we don't like the idea of a church being much worse than our own homes. Mm. All of this to say that when you have a membership, a middle-class membership in the city, they are less likely going to open their doors to alleviate the suffering of others that are on the underside of the city, those that don't have where to right. go. Um, and that's what happened to Adventist City Missions. Altogether. Yeah. That's what happened to Adventist City Missions. It's a, it's a kind of a tragic tale, and that means we're left having to restart them and we had property in the downtowns, the most expensive parts of the world. What happened to that? We sold we it? Sold, we sold it because we weren't having missional success because we weren't actually investing in something like Christ's method of ministry. And so in, in London, in Tokyo, in Sydney, in New, New York, York, we had these places. And then you said, well, the regular type of evangelistic meeting isn't working here. So there's no point to having these properties. So we sell them and we'll never be able to afford to buy equivalents again because these are now some of the no. most exclusive pieces of real estate in the world. Am I wrong in, in assuming they kept them closed most of every day and just opened it on the weekends here and there? Probably, yes. So In, in some it, cases, certainly, maybe not others. But I, I often say that we have a branding problem in the Adventist church because for every McDonald's in the world, 
there are four Adventist congregations, and yet no one knows us, mm. right? So that's a branding problem. I don't think it's a branding problem, despite me having said this for like five years now, <laughs> six years. I think it's a service problem. McDonald's is open all the time, and they serve thousands of people a day. If we kept our churches open and we served thousands of people a week, we would be as known as, mm. if not more. But you see, Sam, this is one of the challenges we face in urban areas, mm. and that many, if not most, of our churches are commuter churches. So it means that... They don't live there. They, they don't travel there. They don't live in that urban community. So they travel there on Sabbath morning, and they leave Sabbath afternoon or Sabbath evening. And the only thing that the local community knows about that church is that on Saturdays there's less parking available. <laughs> True. You know, yes. <laughs> so this is why the urban centers of influence, the emphasis is on Christ's method and reaching out to the community, though as we say, with both oars. Right. We need to draw to a conclusion, but we've talked much about what the Office of Adventist Mission does in terms of managing and strategizing for global mission, church planting, urban centers of influence, but it's also responsible, as you mentioned at the beginning, for promoting mission and making people more aware and more conscious of mission and more likely to support it. Um, something I often hear, especially from older church members, is what happened to mission spotlight? Um, I, I've often heard people say about how much they enjoyed watching mission spotlight back in the day, and then suddenly their local church stopped showing it. So what happened to mission spotlight? What can, what can we do about that? Okay, so mission spotlight was never an official run enterprise of the Adventist Church. It was run as a supporting ministry, working closely with the church. So when they finally closed it, um, and it was pioneered by the Heinrich family, hmm. and it was his wonderful voice I heard when I was a kid, when, when the slideshow would go on of Mission Spotlight, <laughs> there'd be a bell to say, move to the next slide. But anyway, they, they closed shop, and Mission Spotlight as a brand disappeared. And so we, as the Office of Adventist Mission, we started up the Adventist Mission DVD to keep in their footsteps, but we, we didn't have the branding, the name. However, a couple of years down the track, Elder Wilson kindly talked to the Heinrich family and we got permission to use the term Mission Spotlight. So Mission Spotlight is alive and available and ready to be downloaded on the website and it's being shown in hundreds of Suburb schools around the world. So there are, there are still weekly mission videos. Well, Mission Spotlight was never weekly. It was actually monthly. So, uh -huh. so we provide still monthly Mission Spotlight videos, but we go a step further and we also have some videos that can be downloaded that you can show every week if you want. Mm, which would be even better. So what can church members do to ensure that they actually get to watch these videos that you're producing? Uh, I'd encourage them to talk to their church elder, to their Sabbath school director, to the church pastor, because... Okay, and what if they've done that? What if the church elder or <laughs> Sabbath school leader now sort of is, is watching or listening to this podcast and says, I don't want my member to talk to me because I don't know what to do to, to, to get okay. access to it. So you just go to AdventistMission.org and find the Mission Spotlight, go to the video section, and you can download Mission Spotlight to show in your... Or weekly videos, in yeah, fact, or, even weekly. More, or, or even more. Yes. That's fantastic. What else does the Office of Adventist Mission do we to share? everything. <laughs> what else do you do to share what is happening with Adventist Mission? So on our websites, um, AdventistMission.org, Global-Mission.org, uh, we have continual stories, video stories, written stories that are there that you can look at. We have a magazine called 
Mission 360, and you can go okay. just Google Adventist Mission 360, and you will, first thing that comes up, click on it, and there you can look at that magazine online. Can people also subscribe to a print copy? They can. They need to write to us at the Office of Adventist Mission, but in our email address is there. Then we have a TV program called Mission 360 that's available on Hope Channel 3ABN and online. So you can watch it online as well. And then every social media platform, Adventist Mission is there. So we are telling the stories of what is happening when you support the mission of the church with your mission offerings. Gary, we talked about the big challenges of the church. Yeah. Now talk to the average church member that will not travel the world in the, in the foreseeable future. What can they do to be involved in Adventist mission locally? Okay, number one, you can find ways to pray. Pray for your local community, but please pray for world needs. Um, urban areas, the 1040 window, unreached people. And Adventist Mission can help them to find places to target. Is that right? Definitely right. Yeah, exactly. We actually even have a, a big prayer map for urban areas. You can pray your way around the world of the cities. Um, then to where you can be involved. Use the talents and gifts that God has given you locally. And if he calls you, go to Vivid Faith and see if there's any opportunities elsewhere. And thirdly please continue to faithfully give your mission offerings. And you can donate to Global Mission specifically if you want to help plant new groups among unreached people groups. Gary, thank you so much for joining us My today. pleasure, thank you. Great conversation. Well, thank you also for joining us in this episode of Mission 150. Please keep watching on AdventistReview.tv, on the Seventh-day Adventist Church's YouTube channel, or listening on your favorite podcast platform. If you have enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. If you want to know more about Adventist missionary work and missionaries today, go to AdventistMission.org. That's AdventistMission.org. If you want to find mission opportunities today, go to VividFaith.com. We'll be back next week with more on the inspiring history of Adventist mission around the world. <music>